Hello, everyone out there uh, on the internet. We are live. Welcome to Tomorrow's World Now. Uh, you have big questions, and we're going to do our best to provide you with real answers. Uh, welcome again. We do this every Thursday, and I have such a distinguished panel here sitting to my left. On the far left, we have Mr. Gerald Weston. He's the presiding evangelist of the Living Church of God. Uh, to my immediate left, we have Mr. Jim Meredith. He and I were just on last week, weren't we? We were. We've we were had a great time. We've sitting here all week just waiting, uh, waiting for you guys to come back. Uh, he is also a minister with the Living Church of God, and my name is Wallace Smith, uh, presenter on the Tomorrow's World telecast. And I should point out that Mr. Weston, being the presiding evangelist, uh, could actually choose to fire us, right? You know, if we if we don't do well. So we're gonna we're gonna do our best, Mr. West. Do the best we can. We'll do the best we can. <laughs> uh, the topic today is evolution, uh, creation versus evolution, and constantly something in the news. It just never stops. It just seems like an ongoing flood concerning this topic. It's uh, on a lot of people's minds. People think they know uh, everything they need to know about it to draw certain conclusions. And the fact is. It's really a lot fuzzier than people give it credit for, and at the same time, some things are far clearer than people give them credit for. We're going to be talking about this topic, but let me encourage you, please ask questions. Uh, you can follow us on YouTube. We're currently streaming on YouTube and Facebook both. If you have a question, we love to try to answer it, so please do interact with us and put your questions there on Facebook or YouTube, and our faithful crew behind the glass right there will let us know your questions, uh, and we will do our best to answer them. Uh, the first topic that we have today under this subject is the question of whether there is a consensus concerning evolution. You constantly hear from those who are virtually evangelists of the theory of evolution that, oh, there's a consensus on this topic in the scientific community, and simply to question whether the theory of evolution is true or not uh, just shows that you have no idea what you're talking about because all the scientists agree. Uh, have you gentlemen heard that sort of claim before, that all the scientists agree, just shut up and stop asking so many dumb questions? Sounds like all the news media agreeing on the same thing, and it sounds like our country all agreeing on the same thing. We all agree, right? I, I don't think so. I think we all know that uh, there's a lot of scientists out there that totally agree with evolution, and they agree with that evolutionary theory, but yet there's so many out there who don't. And if we had a couple of hours of time, we could go through a whole lot of quotes and talk about a lot of scientists. But I think the first one I want to point to is actually the father of the whole theory of evolution, Charles Darwin. Because here's the man, if anybody was going to agree that we would think he would be right on board and, and right on top of his game, yet it's, it's obvious from a number of things he personally called himself an agnostic meaning he wasn't sure whether or not there even was a God. There might be. Now, if he's a, a hardcore evolutionist, don't you think Darwin would have been the one to say, hey, I'm totally behind this? But it's interesting. We have a quote here in, in uh, a letter that he wrote that uh, he's writing to a gentleman called Nicholas Doades, and he says, I may say that the impossibility of conceiving that this grand and wondrous universe with our conscious selves arose through chance seems to me the chief argument for the existence of God. And then I'll just, I'll just wrap up the very last sentence of it because that's really what is the most important here, where he says, the safest conclusion seems to be that the whole subject is beyond the scope of man's intellect, but man can do his duty. So even Darwin admitted, you know what? It's a theory. I don't know if it's right or if it's wrong, um, the safest conclusion is to say it's probably beyond our ability. Now, he said this almost 250 years ago, 
And one would think that, hey, in the last 250 years ago, with technology and with all of the findings of fossils and everything else today, we would have easily been able to prove that theory. But have we? Right. That's 150 years ago, but the point I'm is sorry, still 100. the same. <laughs> yeah, the point's still the same. Right. Yeah, I think that that's probably what some would argue, is that he may have said those things back then, but really so much time has passed and scientists have poured so much into it that, that by now everybody agrees this is, the, uh, this is the accurate theory for how life came to be uh, the way it is. Have you heard claims like that, Mr. Weston? Well, I think that uh, it's set as, as, as opposites. Either you believe in God or you believe in evolution. And in, in many respects that, that is true, although there are theistic evolutionists. Uh, it is interesting that there's a Huffington Post article that points out that 51% of scientists still believe in God. But I think the bigger question is what are the facts? Uh, what are the facts that are, that are out there available to us today? And scientists and various other people would like us to believe that it's, it's a slam dunk, that it's all said and done. But there are people who are coming to a different conclusion. For example, Anthony Flew uh, was for 50 years one of the staunchest atheists, right. uh, one of the most famous of all atheists. And yet in uh, 2004 he came to the conclusion that uh, God does exist. Now, he didn't think of God like we do. He, he said the Christian God or the Muslim God, Islam God, a God uh, would be more like a cosmic Saddam Hussein. But he recognized <laughs> that the facts, uh, he, he stated that the most impressive arguments for God's existence are those that are supported by recent scientific discoveries. Mm. And the more we learn of science and microbiology and uh, the fossil record, the more we look at it, the more you have to conclude that it didn't evolve, that there is a, a God, there is an intelligence behind life. Right. I think that's part of the challenge is when, when we talk about evolution, the word evolution is so broad. Uh, we were commenting earlier uh, that biologist Francisco Ayala has talked about the word evolution means different things to, to different people when they use it in different ways. For some, it's just simply the, the slight change of animals over time. For others, it's this grand scheme where life comes from a single cell and turns in, you know, from, from goo to, to you. Uh, and then for others, it's the specific mechanisms, whether it's natural selection or other things. And so part of what you're talking about, there's a consensus, but a consensus about, about what? What, uh, what even is evolution? What are you talking about when you talk about evolution? And that actually allows us to uh, uh, transition just a bit. There was a... Uh, a comment that I actually subscribe to evolution, this particular newsletter, Evolution News. Uh, I find it actually a pretty worthwhile uh, uh, a newsletter. It's from some intelligent design theorists, and intelligent design is often treated as just creationism in disguise. But a lot of intelligent design theorists do actually believe in evolution. They believe that animals have changed over time and the rest. They just believe there's some sort of intelligent involvement. Uh, and it quotes from someone uh, who himself is an evolutionary theorist, Gerd B. Mueller. Gerd B. Mueller. He's an Austrian evolutionary theorist. And he himself has commented, he actually gave a, a discussion at the Royal Society, which is a, one of the most legendary uh, institutions of science, where he points out that while the theory of evolution is taken as a given on so many different levels, 
He said, really, there's so many questions it doesn't answer, and they're all the questions that people say that it answers, like you're talking about. Uh, when it comes to, he says, uh, he says, the theory largely avoids the question of how the complex organizations of organismal structure, uh, physiology, development, or behavior, whose variation it describes, actually arise in evolution. Evolution doesn't actually address those things. But I don't know, do y'all actually hear on science programs and the rest, people admitting that? Scientists coming up and saying, well, evolution, we really like it a lot, but it actually doesn't answer very many questions. Have you seen a program where someone's that forthright? I, I've got a couple uh, quotes here. I, I don't want to just quote the whole time, right. but I, I think that people need to be aware that these are the words of, of actual scientists. It's not just us talking, but right. these are their actual words. Uh, for example, Michael Ruse, who is one of the the best known uh, uh, evolutionists that there, there are, uh, said evolution is promoted by its practitioners as more than mere science. Evolution uh, is promulgated as an ideology, a secular religion, a full-fledged alternative to Christianity with meaning and morality. I am an ardent evolutionist and an ex-Christian, but I must admit uh, that in this one complaint, and uh, it says, uh, the literal literalists are absolutely right. Evolution is a religion. That's an amazing admission from right. such a staunch evolutionist and such a popular one. That uh, was true of evolution in the beginning, and it is true of evolution today. Uh, and, and I'd like to also point out what Michael uh, Behe has said on the subject. Michael Behe is a microbiologist at Lehigh University, and uh, he, in his, uh, uh, his book, uh, Darwin's Black Box, which is, is quite a, a seminal book there, he said, uh, uh, when he read Denton's book, Michael Denton's book, he said there were very difficult problems for Darwinian evolution, which I had never thought about, and which no one in all my studies leading to my PhD had bothered to mention. I immediately recognized that they were difficult problems, and I became angry that no mm. one had brought these up. I felt like I was being led down the garden path to a conclusion that didn't really have the evidential support that I thought it had. That's interesting. That's an amazing admission from right. someone in that position. Well, it really is. And I, I think that brings up, related to this first topic we brought up about, is there a consensus? Because we constantly hear, well, there's a consensus, there's a consensus. Everybody believes in this. If there really are serious questions out there uh, about, about whether evolution is true and all the, the ways in which it's discussed, then why do you think we're constantly battered with this idea that there is a consensus, this big false wall of consensus? What do you think, Mr. Meredith? Why do you think we're constantly being told there's a consensus if it's not quite there? We're told a lot of things that we're supposed to believe, aren't we? I mean, this is the world we live in. We're told what to think, what to eat, what to do, and it's a matter of saying, well, because I told you so, it is so. And, you know, we live by our lives in the church of God by a different standard. You know, we live our lives by the word of God, you know, that the entire Bible that we live by is the inspired word of God. That is the basis for our understanding. And so we've got a, a mind that some people would say is closed, but in reality it's open because we're not going to allow ourselves to be driven down some narrow little path that says this is the way you have to think about this or that. You know, we look at society today that says, if you don't accept homosexuality and abortion and other things like that, you're bad, you're evil. 
you know, and God obviously told us that, that the times would come when what is good is going to be evil and what is evil is going to be called good. And those are the times that we live in. Right. And so when it comes to evolution, this is just one more area where the world as a whole doesn't know God, doesn't understand that there really is a true God, and therefore when you've got those, the ones that totally reject God and the hardcore evolutionists, and I'm not talking about the ones that we've discussed here, that there are scientists out there that believe that there is a God, but the hardcore evolutionists don't even want to consider that there's a God. There is no God. They're atheists, by, by and large. And so they want us to, in essence, come around to their way of thinking. And they want to pound that down our throats and be able to say, this is the way it is. Don't, you know, don't just take my word for it. I, I'm sorry, don't, don't, don't take my word for it, but don't question it. Right. And so, you know, they, they don't want to look at the hard facts that we have. And as, as, as you go in and you study this topic, as we're talking about today, you begin to look and see that there is really a lot of unknowns out there. And as, as I mentioned earlier, we've got a lot of scientific evidence, quote unquote, that should prove evolution is a theory, and yet we don't have the evidence because it is, just isn't there. And, you know, you, you, as you talked about, there's different levels of, of what evolution is. Mm. A lot of people just think, well, evolution is that we all came from green slime in a pond somewhere, and uh, some, you know, little, you know, eel or fish or something evolved and suddenly became this and became that, and millions of years later, here we are walking around, and we're smart and we're intelligent and we, we can do all these wonderful things. Well, Evolution, when you look at the, when you begin to study into it, there's both microevolution as well as macroevolution. You know, uh, in your, your question there, I think that uh, it reminds me of uh, the, the story of the preacher who uh, has in his notes, weak point, shout louder. Uh, <laughs> if your point is not strong enough, you, you, silent, you, you bully people in reality. Right. You make them think that you have evidence that you don't have. They want to silence the opposition. And it's interesting to me that in the Middle Ages, the church si uh, uh, was the one that was silencing uh, truth. Right, the Today, Catholic Church. And the, the Catholic uh, Church, right, that's right. right. And now it is the scientists that are trying to silence everybody else. Uh, they don't want to open the door for the possibility of God. Right. And uh, no one wants to be labeled ignorant, so you just keep telling everybody that, well, if you don't believe this, you must be ignorant, so everybody's going to go along with it. Everybody is bullied in that sense. Right. So what you're saying is if you, if you don't have all the facts to back up what you're saying, then simply talk louder, uh, shout down the That's other right. person, say they're a fool for even disagreeing. It's actually one of the things I enjoyed about this Evolution News uh, article and this particular uh, this particular theorist, because that was one of his comments, mm -hmm. was that, that even within the scientific community, there are challenges to how evolution is currently understood and challenges to the fact that it doesn't seem to explain everything they wanted to explain. And he said that sometimes these challenges are met with dogmatic hostility, decrying yep. any criticism of the traditional theoretical edifice. Uh, so you just question the status quo even within the community itself, and you will get shouted down, uh, as it, even those who believe in evolution but just want to possibly talk about something different. Uh, Mr. Meredith, you brought up the question, and, and I think we can address this very quickly. I don't think we need to, to linger on this in particular, but you brought up the question of microevolution versus macroevolution. Some people say those are made up terms. Uh, that, they're not. Actually, this particular Evolution News, the, uh, the article 
quotes this evolutionary theorist as using those exact same terms. Uh, microevolution being changed within, just slight change in an animal, slight adaptions an animal might go through. Um, even the dogs have changed. You know, Chihuahuas and Great Danes somehow came from the same, the same critters. Uh, but that said, macroevolution being the, the concept that all of life about us, these vast changes that can go from something the equivalent of a bacterium to each of you, distinguished gentlemen here to my left, uh, that those are really two different things. And so people often accuse us and accuse you of not believing any animal can change, that God created the Chihuahua the way it was essentially, or created the Great Dane the way it was, created every bird exactly the way it is today. Let's just kind of put this to rest. Do you, I know you've already kind of commented, do you gentlemen believe that, that there's no change at all inside the animal kingdom? No, we, we have uh, a great uh, change that does take place. And I think that that's one of the beautiful things about life. We've watched microevolution during our day. There are new breeds of dogs that they have been able to breed, but they all happen to be dogs at the, at the end of the day. Uh, also, you, you have a Chihuahua and you have a Great Dane within the same animal kind. Uh, they're, they're both dogs, but they don't normally breed. Uh, there are obvious reasons for that uh, to be the case, right. that they can't breed. So you do have those species within a species that, uh, you know, kind of get off to a, a, a side here but you don't see them becoming something else. You know, one of the, the, the big uh, problems with Darwinian evolution uh, is the fossil record. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing to me how fossils always seem to be presented as being favorable toward evolution, that right. you have these fossils and they show this. But in reality, that is one of the biggest problems for evolution. They simply do not have the transitional forms. Uh, where, where do you have the... Uh, uh, the giraffe, and what was its predecessor, and you would think that if it was going to evolve that way, that it would there would be many different transitions. As Darwin right. said, there were many small transitions. But we don't find those small transitions. It isn't the missing link. It is the thousands and millions of missing links that are just simply not there. Right. right. You'll find celebrated cases like a uh, uh, supposedly the evolution of the whale, and they will show you all these different skeletons mm -hmm. of a whale, horses, uh, and uh, people, supposedly people, and sometimes birds, uh, sometimes. But there's a reason you always hear about those cases, because there just aren't a lot of cases. There's not much they can actually point to. Uh, one of the great lessons of the fossil record, if there was any kind of change over time, it's great periods of stasis where things remain the same and aren't actually changing. But the idea, I think like you were saying, Mr. Meredith, that, that animals don't have the capacity to change or adapt within a certain range. I don't think right. anybody is really well, saying you know, that. I, I think, I, I think this article that you referred to uh, from Evolution and News, Evolution News and Science Today, I, I think it ha has a good quote here just talking about that where he says here in the article, many people who embrace Darwinian evolution confidently state that evolution is a proven fact. Okay, this is they confident. They say it's, it's for real. But he goes on to say, they say this is the basis of thousands of papers discussing microevolution. Herein lies the second mistake. The assumption that because variation slash microevolution is such an overwhelmingly proven fact that therefore macroevolution must be as well. So right. they're saying, well, because th things can happen on a very small, minute basis, then therefore they can also do it on a grand basis. Right. And that just isn't, yeah. that isn't the truth. That's not the reality. Right.
You know, it's interesting. My first year at uh, Ventura College, or actually the only year I was there, I had a biology class. And my professor spent the first couple weeks trying to prove that a theory is a fact. That, in other words, we call it a theory, but it really isn't a theory, it's a proven fact. And uh, at one point in the class, uh, I was actually able to uh, get him to admit that he didn't have an answer. And that was how the first cell came into being. Hmm. Uh, he, he was trying to show the, the experiments by Miller and uh, I forget the other fellow's name. Uh, of amino acids, creating amino acids in a, uh, a test tube and, and a uh, very uh, uh, contrived uh, situation within the laboratory. And so they produced a couple amino, amino acids. But from a couple amino acids to a full-blown cell is such a gigantic leap. Right. Uh, scientists now know enough about cells that they recognize that Every, sing every single cell that exists that they know of is more complicated than a city or a factory, mm -hmm. uh, much more complicated than any machine that man has ever made. Now, we can take all the ingredients of that cell, and we could chop it all up and put it in a test tube, and we can shake it for as long as we want to, but it will never become a living being or a living creature or a living cell. Uh, we, we simply can take all the ingredients and cannot do it. With all of our intelligence, and yet we believe that somehow in a hostile environment, uh, prebiotic uh, soup there, it, it somehow just came together. And right. what, I, what I always like to think is, you know, you could have all the ingredients, you could put everything together, but you don't, if you don't have the glad bag to hold the whole <laughs> thing together, it doesn't exist. Right. No, that's, that really is part of the challenge. I know people will have challenged me before, saying that, well, don't you believe in evolution? You know, we, we've seen speciation, that is the, 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 the uh, arisal of new species. Mm -hmm. Say some, there's some bird population that's cut off by some circumstance, and one part of the population becomes slightly different enough that you might consider them two different species. And so, therefore, you need to accept evolution. It's clearly been proven. But that really is ridiculous. You're saying because you've seen some slight variation in bird species that I have to believe it's possible in any amount of time to go from chemicals that aren't even necessarily organized, mm -hmm. just some sort of soup, that somehow produces me, that, that's a leap. Even some atheists, one of my, I was going to say my fav, one of my favorite atheists, but uh, one of my favorite atheists is uh, Thomas Nagel, and he's upfront about that. He says that the, to believe in evolution the way it's described is essentially a, a great leap of blind faith. He actually credits a lot of the intelligent design theorists for poking holes in a theory that clearly doesn't do the job. They expect you to take what you're saying, like the, the Uri Miller experiments. Mm, yeah. And they, they found that they could generate, in what they thought was a, an early Earth atmosphere, they discovered it, it's not since then. And so they got a few kind of dark strands and think, well, therefore we know how life's shown up. And yet decades later, they still admit that's one of the biggest questions in science. They can't answer where the first sort of reproductive apparatuses has come from. It's still a vast open right. question. I, I think this goes to some of our earlier discussion. Uh, it was Harold C. Ure that uh, was with, involved with uh, Miller. And the week before, I had quoted uh, Harold C. Ure as saying that the more we look into the universe, the more we believe that it's impossible for uh, evolution to have occurred any place in the universe. Yet, as an article of faith, we believe that organic evolution occurred on this planet. And so I quoted that to my professor. And to show you how intimidation can work, <laughs> he said, who's he? Now, he was Nobel Prize winning, uh, I think, physicist. And uh, the very next week, 
he is quoting this experiment by Urey and Miller, hmm. uh, where they did these things with amino acids. So he knew who he was. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he just simply uh, had no way of uh, countering it, so he, he made fun of it. Right. That's a, that really is a great deal of the tactic, is you can't answer with facts, and so you answer with a louder answer uh, and just expect people to move on. Uh, the third topic we're going to address today, you'll see, is the scientific method. The scientific method. And I want to put something out there. You know, people will uh, sometimes accuse us of not believing in the scientific method. I, I think the scientific method's fantastic. Fantastic. It's a, you form a hypothesis, you experiment to see if, you try to make a prediction based on that hypothesis and do an experiment and see if it's true. And if it's true, it leans you towards thinking maybe my hypothesis is correct. I'll, I'll do some more experiments. Some people will accuse evolutionists of not using the scientific method, but if you actually look in the, ev the, the, the literature of those who do work in what you'd call an evolutionary biologist, they're doing actual experiments all the time. They are doing experiments and looking for gene frequencies and trying to make predictions. Some of those are incredibly wrong. The hypotheses don't always work out, and then sometimes they do. But in that realm, generally what you experience is the, the experiments don't val validate the entire scope of evolution. Uh, they just validate this kind of small part of it. And what doesn't seem to be backed by the scientific method is this broad sweeping view of evolution as if it is some kind of faith that you can't you can't question in any kind of way i thought the scientific method was all about being able to question something and ask uh, difficult questions it seems more and more that evolution isn't being treated as science but being treated as an element of religious faith have you have you experienced anything like that this kind of sense about evolution as a as a religion I, you know, I, I, we, we discussed this earlier, and, and I, have to, I have to go back to what I heard my dad say over and over again before he died. And he said, you know, anybody who is a firm believer in evolution has to have so much more faith than we do to believe in a real God who does exist. So going back to once again what my dad said to me, he said, you know, look at my watch here. And this is a watch that actually he gave me. He bought this in 1963, and wow. uh, he gave it to me shortly before he died. And he said, if you were walking down the beach and you saw that lying in the sand, would you look at that and say, wow, how on earth did that thing just come to be? It, just, it must have just, over millions of years, just all of those intricate little pieces have come together to make a perfectly well-orchestrated machine. Right. And yet this watch doesn't begin to hold a candle to one of those 60 trillion cells that make up our bodies. It takes more yeah. faith to believe right. in evolution than it does in a real true God who does exist. Uh, Paley was the one that uh, came up with uh, the idea, uh, the, the watch. And uh, one thing that scientists hate, or evolutionists, let me put it this way, hate is for you to speak of blind faith. But I like to go back to Richard Dawkins, the blind watchmaker, because he was attacking that, that whole idea. But there's so much more information today, as you pointed out, there's so much more complexity to, to life. It is interesting to me that when you look at, you can go on the internet and you can look up DNA replication. And these hardened evolutionists speak of micro uh, or molecular machines.
very tiny molecular, and they use the word machines because they work like machines. Right. And when you see how they portray the replication of DNA and everything, it is, it is so um, uh, complex, complex uh, and, and so mechanical right. that it's hard to believe that this could just happen by itself the speed with which things happen. Our body puts out, and, and this comes from one of these, these uh, scientists out there, 100 trillion hemoglobin molecules per second, hmm. per second. It is lightning speed with which our body is working. And it's like pulling a, tipper, a ticker tape through a machine, and it, it begins to produce whatever it needs to, and all the amino acids come in, and it puts together exactly as it's done. It, it, it's amazing what's out there. Yeah, you know, from what you're saying, you know, I think it was William Paley, right? His uh, right. analogy of the watch on the beach uh, that, that uh, uh, Dr. Merrith used as well. And to me, Paley's argument is dismissed way too quickly. It's still right. a good argument. You know, it, 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 there's, there's a, a richness and a detail there that certainly has to be discussed. But from what you're saying, finding a watch would actually be far less complicated than actually finding Absolutely. a living cell just because we can't see in it because it's so small. When you dive into that cell, we actually have, I think, an article uh, in Tomorrow's World magazine about the, uh, the life of the cell inside the cell. It's far more complicated than any watch you are ever going to find, any watch that, we have ever, that we've ever made. Yeah, I'd like to bring out a quote here from, uh, this is Bill Bryson, uh, Short History of Nearly Everything. And, and he clearly, when you read the whole book, you realize that he buys into evolution. But in talking about proteins and how they come into being, uh, it points out that nobody knows exactly how many proteins the human body has, but it could be upward of, of a million different kinds of proteins. And he says, by all the laws of probability, proteins shouldn't exist. And then he talks about collagen. And uh, Alexander Yaris talks about collagen, how uh, it, it is like a rope-like structure. It's part of our body. It's, it's one of the most common uh, uh, proteins in the human body body. Hmm. It's made up of 1,055 amino acids. That's like taking the letters of the hmm. alphabet, 20 of them being a, a number of proteins, and stacking them all together and just the right sequence. And if it's not in the right sequence, it, it doesn't do anything. So you just take a 1,055 letters and put them together or just start scrambling together till you come up with something meaningful. Hmm. And uh, as, as uh, Bryson says the chances of a 1,055 sequence molecule like collagen spontaneously assembling are frankly nil. It just isn't going to happen. Right. And he points out the odds of even a 200 chain of, uh, of uh, amino acids coming together. And he says that the, the chance of a, a 200 uh, amino acid protein self-assembling is one chance in 10 to the power of 260. That's a one with 260 zeros behind right. it. And as he says here, that is itself a larger number than all the atoms in the universe. Mm -hmm. Now, you were in Toronto, uh, came up there one time, and, and uh, uh, Mr. Smith is a, uh, was an actuary. Uh, he knows all about numbers. And so I said, you know, this can't be. There are a lot of atoms out there. Mm -hmm. So 260 zeros, that, that can't be. And uh, so we said, well, how many are there? And, and he said, well, let's go on the Internet and pulled up a number of sources, and it was 1 to the power of, uh, or 10 to the power of, uh, I think, 82 or 83. Yeah, the estimates like vary, that. but that's right the neighborhood, right? Right. right. 
And so for collagen, I think we've worked it out that it was one chance in 1,300 and some, some odd. Right. Uh, so getting back to Alexander Ciaris, I don't want to uh, hog the conversation here, but he points out that in our body, that collagen is a rope-like, or is, I'm sorry, is a, is a grid-like, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, it, it's a rope-like structure. Okay. Like uh, fibers and such? Or like it's a fibers and, it, and it's a rope-like structure except for one place in the human body. And collagen in the eye is more of a grid. Mm. If it were like everything else in the body, collagen, every place else in the body, we would not be able to see as we see today. Mm. Now, how did that just happen? Did we just decide that, well, my eyesight isn't very good. I think that we, we need to change the collagen. <laughs> it, just, it just happened. It's, it, you know, just like that pond scum became us sitting here today. And, and we want something, so it just happens. And, and we're just talking about, you know, the fascinating, wondrous human body. And yet, when we look at the Earth, according to BBC News, there are some 8.7 million different species of life on the Earth, plant and animal, mm -hmm. mostly animal, 7.77 million animals, mm. uh, 0.61 million fungi, and 0.3 million, 300,000 uh, plants. And each one of those is as complex as the other in, in mm -hmm. many, in many, many ways. So I guess it just all happened. And the interdependency where one depends on the other. How did they evolve at the same time? Right. Even uh, uh, reproduction. Uh, if you had the first male, unless you had the first female at the same time, it, it ceased. It didn't right. happen. It seems as though the more they discover, one of the, one of the questions we, we received was, uh, has the theory of evolution made any predictions that are then shown to be correct or a scientific finding said to agree with evolution in hindsight? I think we, we actually addressed that a little bit, is that there are some small predictions here and there of how things might change. Mm -hmm. Ma yeah, microevolution, but in terms of the broad theory, uh, that tends to be more a theoretical framework in which they use to interpret the things they find and, and to, to extend them. But actually the kind of things you're talking about, how, how interdependent everything is, I constantly see, uh, you have a great program on, uh, of moths and men that talk about this, uh, the moth and the yucca plant, is that mm -hmm. or the yucca moth and yes. the, the plant? Yeah. And there's a lot of theories as to how that could come to be so interdependent uh, without a God involved or anything else, mm -hmm. but there's just no good strong basis for proving any of that. It really is just sort of a, a just-so story. Um, we really need to wrap up. We're, we're just about out of time. Uh, you had one great, I did not want to leave without that quote from Michael Roos, if you can find it. Uh, Michael Roos is an evolutionist himself. Oh, yeah, we already gave that one. Oh, did we read that we one? Did, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, then pause here and rewind and listen to that, listen to that quote again. That was, uh, well, that was very good. I will good. throw one thing out here for your viewers out there to go on the Internet and download and read our book, The Real God. This will give you some answers to what is really happening in this world and why we're here. Uh, there is a real God. He did create us. What we read in Genesis, you know, chapter 1 and the six days of creation actually did happen. And, uh, you know, there's so many proofs to that. And, like I said, it's far more easily, easy to believe and have faith. And, and really, in reality, as we talk about, science does prove the existence of, of a God. Uh, we just have to believe it. And if you just ignore the fact that there is a God of the universe, then your mind's closed. And, you right. know, you... But, you know... The, 
proving that there's a real God is the is really the first step in Christianity is what it's all about. Yeah, it really is. The, the Apostle Paul said in Hebrews chapter 11 that those who come to God must believe that he is. And one of the things I like about that booklet, we've been talking about a lot of biology here in terms of uh, evolution and the rest, but really in so many different realms of science, if you take the time to actually learn with an open mind, uh, you find that on, on vast levels, so much of the sciences do speak to the existence of a of a real God. Um, any, any final comments before we head out? Sure. Um, I'd, I'd like to make two, two quotes here, okay. if you don't uh, mind here. Uh, the one by Michael Ruse, uh, this evolutionist, said, evolution is promoted by its practitioners as more than mere science. Evolution is promulgated as an ideology, a secular religion, a full-fledged alternative to Christianity. He says, evolution is a religion. This was true of evolution at the beginning, and it's true of evolution today. And I, I think I'd like to uh, bring this out because I think it's really important. In uh, Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe, who, again, was a former evolutionist who uh, read Michael Denton's book and concluded that uh, he'd been led down the wrong path, he asks the question, when he looks at he says, the results of these cumulative efforts to investigate the cell to investigate life at the molecular level is a loud, clear, piercing cry of design. And then he asked the question, why is it that science hasn't really promoted this in such a way that, it's, as he says, uh, this triumph of science should evoke cries of eureka from 10,000 throats, should occasion much hand-slapping and high-fiving and perhaps even uh, an excuse to take a day off. And as he points out here, the dilemma is that while one side of the elephant is labeled intelligent design, this is why the scientific community will not embrace uh, intelligent design, he said the other side might be labeled God. There's a hostility against God uh, amongst these people. They don't want God to exist because then there are laws. And so uh, uh, he, he really nails it there. The other side is, is God, and so we can't, we can't accept design. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a funny irony in all of this as we wrap up that we talk about on the program all the time on the Tomorrow's World program. We say, don't believe us just because we say it. You know, prove it for yourself. You know, go to your Bible, prove these things for yourself. And we're talking about as a community and some evolutionary quarters that essentially don't want to be asked questions. Mm -hmm. They'd rather you just take their word for it. So it's kind of a switcheroo where the religious are often claimed as the closed-minded and unwilling to take questions mm -hmm. and uh, the scientists open. When, when it comes to evolution, it's often quite the opposite. Uh, thank you, gentlemen both, Mr. Jim Meredith and Mr. Gerald Weston for being on the program today. And thank all of you for joining us. Please come back Thursday. We'll be right here again on Facebook and YouTube for Tomorrow's World Now. We look forward to seeing you then. Take care.